We're in a series right now where we are talking about the vision and mission of our church. And this is our second time doing this as we unveiled that new uh, vision and mission last August. And so we are recalibrating and refocusing our compass and doing that work again right now. So last week, Robin started us off um, talking about the first part of our vision. And when we consider our vision and our mission, that's where the title of the series comes from, where we're going, that's our vision, and how we're going to get there, that's our mission. So our vision is to be a place to, and a place to, yeah. So it's been around for a little while, we know it. And last week, Robin uh, preached on the first part, a place to belong. And this week, I'm hoping together that we can adequately explore this second idea, which is such a large and can be very intimidating and divisive idea, um, this idea of what does it mean to know God? And how are we going to embark on that vision uh, as a church. So, um, I think this question about knowing God is one of the deepest, most enduring questions of humanity. Um, that, that we all want to know, is there a being out there that is caring, that and, 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 and are they are all powerful? Do they care for me? Does he or she or it care for me? And of course, as human beings, we go about various ways of trying to answer that question through the various religions we have or responding or reacting against uh, religion in some way. And and even if you're here this morning and you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, we are not, uh, we, we're, we're not um, dismissed from having to deal with this question because even if we believe that Jesus is God incarnate, we don't get to see him walking around. We don't get to say, hey, Jesus, I'm gonna come see you on Thursday, right? And, and you can help me walk through these things. We still are left with his absence. We're left with words on a page in a Bible. So what does it mean to know God? In the turn of the last century, moving into the 20th century in the United States, we were at the height of something called the Industrial Revolution. So coming into the 1900s, there were factories popping up everywhere all over our country, and people were flooding into these factories as workers, many of them immigrants who just left another home looking for opportunities in the United States. And so all of these factories were popping up and we were supplying our country and many parts of the world with all types of goods through these factories. And at this time, because there was so much poverty and need, many families, children were going to work in the factories as well. Little bitty children, as young as my oldest son, Benjamin. 
And of course, this was an issue because children in heavy machinery, I don't know if you've ever experienced this yourself personally or tangentially, they don't work well together. So there was a lot of issues happening here and deaths and injuries and things like that. Some political activists, they wanted to do something about this. And so in 1918, the first compulsory public school act was passed in Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Um, within 20 years, every state had passed such a law so that all children were in school. But the, but the interesting thing to me about that, because I'm an educator um, and not just a preacher and pastor, uh, not that I'm saying you can't just be that. I'd rather be that today. Uh, I'm a little distracted. But what was happening is these schools that the students were attending, they started to look like factories. And so that in the schools, the teachers were taught that what they should be doing is depositing information into students so that they would have the necessary ingredients to meet the needs of this industrial world. So in essence, the teacher was like the assembly line worker pouring and putting things into the child. And once they got to the end of the assembly, they were a finished product then ready to go out and be a good into the community in that way. And so there was a lot of solitary learning. There was a lot of memorization and regurgitation of information. There was a lot of chanting information. There was a lot of ideas of, good, you can say back to me what I said to you, so now you know things. You have knowledge about these things. This wasn't only happening in schools, though. This was also happening as the world of psychology was developing. There became known this thing called cognitive therapy. And it was the idea that this part of your brain, this neocortex area up here, that it was the most important part. And it was your feelings that was getting in the way of progress in your life. So what you had to learn to do was distrust the feelings and the heart the seed of your emotions, and what you had to learn to do was make cognitive, rational decisions. Well, you're scared of this happening? Okay, so what is the likelihood of that really happening? Well, I guess it's not that much. Great, so don't be scared anymore. And this went on for a while. This, the reason why I'm bringing this up right now, you're probably wondering, is because this also is an approach that the Protestant church uh, brought in as well. So this idea that if I can give you the right ideas about God, then you'll know him. The same way that we deposit information into students, which some of you are saying, that wasn't just the Industrial Revolution time, that was my education, and maybe I'm a teacher and I'm being told to taught that way, teach that way now, right? So it's not like all of this stuff is in the past, but I'm trying to give you a little context for it. So the same thing was going on in the Protestant church to where what we thought was knowing God is if we had enough of the doctrines memorized, we had enough of the ideas in the Bible in our head, and then we could spit them out. So I remember not that long ago, uh, four or five years ago, using a tool called the gospel circle. 
And there's, there's, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with these things, but there are things lacking in these things because we aren't just cognitive thinking people, right? We're at Christ City. This is old hat, right? We have feelings as well. But the idea of the gospel circle is you talk about what's going on in your life and then you have people gospel you. So they tell you, okay, well, how does this fit into the gospel narrative? So uh, this is happening. You've got these problems and Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And so then uh, put that together with your life experiences and then the Holy Spirit's gonna work and boom. And it was, it, 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 it's like I said, it's not a bad thing, but it sort of mirrors cognitive therapy in a way. It mirrors this idea, if you get some thinking right, then your life will follow. The problem is that just didn't work for me. Like I tried that real hard. I tried it as hard. I tried to cram all that information. I tried to get other people to cram all that information in my mind. And yet I did not feel like I knew God. And so when I finally had a guide and somebody to show me a way back to my heart, I realized that I was lonely with God, that I didn't really know if he cared about me, that I didn't really know where he was, but I could tell you everything about the death and resurrection of Jesus. I could tell you the teachings. I could show you where it was in the Bible. I could recount the stories with great passion and details. And people wanted to hear me talk about those things. And yet I found myself lonely and questioning, is this being someone who cares for me? Is, is there a divine presence even there? But what what I found in these questions was not ultimately a despair. You're like, oh, that's good, Jamin, because you're like up here preaching to us right now. So hopefully you've got something else to say this morning. What I found is that while the things I'd learned about God were good and helpful, and this Bible taught me a lot about him and still teaches me a lot about him, there was opening up the possibility that there was other ways to become aware of and to know this God that I professed, that I professed to follow for so much of my life. I want to show you something uh, from recent psychology and kind of show this shift that happens. And then we're going to head into the scriptures that we just read here and try to make this connection first cognitively, but ultimately I want us to be able to feel these things and to walk away with an encouraging sense that there is more ways than maybe I was aware of to become aware of this God that we're reading about to the, way, the ways and the places where you thought, well, I'm just a sinner and thank God Jesus died on the cross for me because I'm never gonna change and these things are never gonna be different to get hope and encouragement that that's not really what God intended. So, um, this quote 
is from modern psychology, and we have the ability now to actually study what the brain does when it's taking in certain things, namely also when it's feeling emotions, because the, you know, our heart doesn't actually, isn't actually the place of emotion. It actually happens in a part of our brain called the limbic brain. So on the screen, um, this is what they've learned. They've learned that learnings accompanied by strong emotion actually form neural circuits in the subcortical implicit memory that are exceptionally durable, normally lasting a lifetime. So what that means is when we are engaged in learning, when our emotions are connected to what is happening, it actually creates new physical pathways and connections in our brain. Isn't that amazing? So this uh, psychologist Scott Mackin goes on to say this about um, these findings. Therefore, the right brain, the limbic, unconscious, emotional, intuitive interaction of the psychotherapist and client is more important than cognitive or behavioral suggestions from the therapist. So let me translate that into church language. Most of the preaching I've sat under in my life is probably like this. Think more this way than I'm telling you about right now, and then your behavior will change. But what I think the Bible is actually talking about when it's talking about knowing is more in tune to this idea that Scott Mackin is talking about here, that he, they have observed that that unconscious, emotional, intuitive part of us when that is active and connected, we change, we can change as people. And if the Christ is who this scripture right here that we just read said he is, then why wouldn't it be that way? Why wouldn't it be that way? So to sum this idea up, uh, this uh, psychologist, David uh, Wallen, says this. They will not remember your ideas or what you say, but they will remember how you made them feel, talking to counselors. Some of you might wonder, um, for me personally, like, well, well Jamin, will you, will you break it down a little bit more? Will you give us a little bit more doctrine on Sunday morning? Like, why don't you do that more often? Because I want you to feel something. I want to connect with your head, but I don't want to leave the heart out. And I want you to be able to know God, not just know about him. And so doctrine is important, but it is not God. It isn't God. The Bible isn't God. Christians, we need to hear that. Some of us need to hear that. We've been taught our whole lives. Maybe nobody actually said that sentence to us, but all the implicit messages we got, the unsaid things were that this book is actually God. And if you don't sign off on every interpretation somebody's given you about this, you have lost God. It 
if, if the Christ is fully human, filled to the brim and overflowing with divinity, that means that God is a person. And unless it's my child, I can't lose a person. I can't. Toni Morrison, prominent author, the first African-American to win a Nobel Peace Prize for literature who died a few weeks ago, she said this. You'll have to skip a few slides, Amber, for this. She said, you can't own a human being. And you can't lose what you don't own. And so, you know, some of us, I hope there's, there's some of us here this morning. Some of us are in a period of deconstruction, a place where we've lost our faith. And that is an appropriate place. And that's a stage and a phase that we need to go through as people on a faith journey. But I want to tell you something. I want to give you a little bit of encouragement, even right here at this point, that you can't lose a person. So, if you're married, um, you have arguments with your spouse sometimes. And sometimes you doubt the validity of what they say. Like, when sometimes when Becky gets into an argument and I'm explaining something to her and I have this really great outline and I've got points and I've got sub points and she's like, I get it. And I'm like, no, you don't. You don't get it. I don't lose her when that happens. She's not gone, even though I doubt some of the things that she's saying and she doubts most everything that I'm saying. I haven't lost her. She's a person and I'm in relationship with her. So, going back to our vision, a place to belong, a place to know God. How do we belong? We belong through relationships, right? That's the, that's the only way to truly belong to something is through relationships. And, and how do relationships work? Well, we know someone by being known. Those things happen together. They happen at the same time that as you begin to learn about another person, they are in essence, they're learning about you. The psychologists, they talk about this thing called attunement. And it's the idea that the way a person really actually changes is not being removed and getting cold calculated advice and telling them not to trust their heart, which I've heard many times in a sermon, but isn't actually a full passage of text in the Bible anywhere. You can ask me about that later. Is attunement, this idea that 
when someone tells you something and they have emotions about it, that you respond with your emotions. Another word for that it is empathy. This is the way we come into the world. My two-month-old baby boy, his face scrunches up and he's crying and screaming and we try to get there with him and calm him down. And I tell him all the time, it's so hard to be a baby. I tell him that, oh, oh I know it's hard to be a little baby. I tell my three-year-old, it's hard to be a three-year-old. I know I'm with you. That's upsetting and that's sad. That's attunement. And we want that from our parents. And if we didn't get that, we spend the rest of our lives many times looking for that, not knowing, grasping at something. Don't we want that from God as well? Don't we want when we're struggling, when, when life isn't making sense for this divine being to say to us, I see you. It's hard to be a 25-year-old. It's hard to be a 42-year-old. It's hard to have to go back to school. It's, it's hard when you've tried really hard and it didn't work out. Of course we do. And in an exchange with another human being, when we have emotions and they have emotions, we talk about what we think about those things, we can actually change. We can actually grow up. We can actually become mature, as Paul says in this text, presented mature. So when we go back to the scriptures, this is what we see about this God, this God of the Bible, this God in the tradition of our faith. In Colossians 1 verses 15, it says, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That the son so places God in a physical location of a male who has a father in this instance, that God was human and is human. This is an incredible thing. It has many implications for our life and not just that God came and he did this so that he could die, that he came to just stand in the way of a gun and be shot for our sake and then get jetted back up to heaven. Because if you were a good Hebrew boy or girl reading this passage of scripture right now, it would have an echo, a loud echo. And that echo comes from the very beginning of the Judeo-Christian faith in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So what is it that Paul is telling us here? Jesus is created in the image of God, but, but so are we. This is, this is what the first hearers of this would have immediately thought about. What does that mean for us as human beings? Does that mean that we're basically a bunch of 
throwaways except for our right thinking about God? Or does it mean that we've always, always had this great mystery within us? Christ in you, the hope of glory. I want to draw something to help us talk about this a little bit more. And for those of you who know that I'm an artist, don't get too excited about this drawing. It's not going to be one of those times like the, the, like the stirring out at Hope where like I'll talk and then at the end I'll draw one line. It'll be Jesus's face. It's not going to be anything like that. Basically going to be a few circles. But what I want to say about this is, before we get to this drawing, is Christ shares in our humanity. And in fact, what the scriptures say all throughout is that we share in God's divinity. It was always there, always meant to be there. That Christ came and he reconciled these things together. And so that means that we can have relationship with ourselves and with others and with God, and that can happen in the same ways to an extent that we can find, I can find some Christ in Drew. I can find some Christ in Ted. I can be, I can know God. I can know God by knowing his church. The passage says he is the head of the church. It's there in the Bible. I'm not making this stuff up. So the mystery is around this. Because our relationships are broken, because there is so much hurt and harm in our relationships and how we grew up and all of these things, is how does that happen? How do we find divinity in one another? And how does that connect us to the God we so desperately want to know? Do you care? Do you see me? Do you know that it's hard for me? When you're in relationship with somebody, you don't get to know everything about them. You don't get to decide, okay, now, Abby Allman, you disclose this about yourself to me. God's the same way. He's not a genie we can summon. It's not I dream of genie on Nick at night. Anybody, anybody with me? Anybody? Play the old reruns? Long time ago, I played the old reruns. So what this means is... I want to quote uh, Father Richard Rohr and Andreas Ebert in the, in the bulletin here. It's your bulletin quote. It means that there is a level of uncertainty and unknowing about this relationship with God as there is with any human being. It says this, if we are unwilling to live askew for a while, to be set off balance, to wait on the ever spacious threshold, we remain in the same old room for all our lives. If we will not balance knowing with a kind of open-ended not knowing, nothing new seems to happen. 
Thus, it is called faith and demands living with a certain degree of anxiety and holding a very real amount of tension. Change. And many of you, what might be cropping in your mind right now is, well, God doesn't change, Jamin. Don't you know that? You need to go back to seminary. I didn't go to seminary. God doesn't change. He stays the same. And I say, yes, I know he does. But was Jesus God? I'm pretty sure he changed. Because in the book of Luke, it says he was small and then he grew in stature and wisdom. Oh, God changed. Let let me think about this. Is there anybody in your relationship where you've ever said this? um, That person never changes. And you meant it in like a really good, exciting way. So, does God change? Well, in the person of Jesus, he absolutely does. And does he change in his um, immutable, which means not changing, ways of um, his sovereignty and his all-powerfulness and things like that? Like, in in some ways, no. But in, in another way, yes, Jesus was fully divine and fully human at the same time. And he may not change, but that doesn't mean you're not changing. Even if, you, even if you can't wrap your mind around that God changes, you're changing, which means the way that you understand and interact with God changes. Do you interact with your parents the exact same way as you did when you were five? If the answer is yes, you need counseling right now, I can hook you up with somebody good afterwards. But hopefully your relationship has changed. How you see one another changes. So why? Why? And I'm not primarily speaking to people in this room. So that's why I'm talking very loud right now. Why do we think our relationship with God should say the same? That all the things we learned about him in Sunday school, if somebody challenges those, that they're upsetting and upheaving all of God. In that way, he's not very easy to change. Whatever we think in the little prefrontal cortex in our head is not going to mess him up. I said I was going to draw something, didn't I? (laughs) So um, I want us to think about this in terms of something that just for a moment at the very end of a training, because we had to had to book it out of the fellowship hall. um, Some of the story group leaders were there, and I just said, if you took the the vision of Christ City, the, the idea of belonging and the idea of believing or knowing God, and you put it in two circles, what would you, what would you do it like? And I want to just walk you through a couple of those circles, and I think it'll leave us with a, a picture and a metaphor that I hope uh, endures for a little while with you, that it, that it inspires you in some way, okay? So, Uh, The the first way that most of us uh, in our training, when we're asked about something like this, uh, two circles with two different things, what what do you draw? Two circles, go go back to grade school, go back to college, go back to wherever. What's it look like? A Venn diagram, that's right. And we do it like this and we got 
belong here, we got believe here, and we start filling in like, there, 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 there. And then in the middle, we're like, okay, belong and believe, that's church, right? Over here, it's like reading my Bible, is believing. And then we kind of fill in the places where they overlap. And that idea didn't last long in my mind. I'm like, no, that's definitely not it. And so I, I decided to keep thinking about the circle. So I drew another one. And uh, one circle was inside of the other. And I thought, okay, well, like, belonging goes in here. And believe is this big circle here. And so, like, as we um, start believing and belonging, kind of they overlap, right? They overlap and they go together. But then belief is like this bigger, expansive thing, uh, belief in God. And then I was like, no, that, that's... That's still, I still don't think that's right. And so I kept thinking about it. And early Tuesday morning, I just reversed the circles. Still one big one and one little one. And it could be in the middle. It could be anywhere inside there. But believe is here. Belong is here. And I just want you to follow me for a minute here. It's this idea here that the belief that we have, it fits inside this greater sense of belonging. Back in verse 15, when it says he's the image of the invisible God and says that we're created in God's image, that means you belong. That means God made you and said, very good stuff. You already belong. But what we believe a lot of the time is not that. We're not able to get there. We're not able or we're not able to believe that other things belong, that Christ is holding it all together. We think we're holding it all together. I want you to turn to your partner right now and tell him, you don't hold it all together. And I want you to turn to your other partner and say, you look like God. Created in the image of God. <laughs> and so the struggle becomes... How do we recognize that on our little island of belief, what all actually belongs? The text says that creation was made by and for him, echoing Genesis again, the very next verse, where it says, hey, you guys, go play and go figure this out. You're in charge of the animals and everything else. Like, take care of this world. We got off track. And God said, let me remind you of how good I made you in this place, that I'm willing to reconcile it all. I'm, I'm willing to go to my death to show you that everything belongs. That God, to bother, borrow another of Richard Rohr's phrases, God is the great includer from Al-Qaeda to Donald Trump, to Elizabeth Warren, 
to your nasty coworker who talks about you behind your back, to your friend who said something you didn't like, to your parents who you're not talking to anymore, to the abused and the abuser, to the person who doesn't fit inside your idea of normal, ethnically, gender, sexual orientation, that God is the great includer. And so our belief is always smaller than his belonging. That wherever you find the edges of what you include, of what you think belongs, you also will find the edge of what you know. That's what this text, I believe, is saying. So I want to end this sermon with an exercise. Um, I'm going to imagine that belief, and I'm going to make it a little bit more inside this circle here. I'm an artist, I promise. I want us to imagine the things that we believe, the things that we include is an island. And the things that God says belongs is an ocean. And if you would, you don't have to, but I think this would make the experience richer for you. I think if you close your eyes and let me walk you through this, it might stay with you and inspire you a little bit more. So I want you to imagine this island. On it is all the stuff that you've included. And you see people from your family there. You see friends. You see things that you think about yourself, that you're, you're really good at math, or um, you, you, you're really good at being a provider, or you've got this really nice style and selection about how you dress and things like that. But you've got all those things that you include, things that, that belong. But what you notice, and there's other, other people walking around doing the same thing on this island. You notice, though, that the tide on the edge of this island, that it keeps moving towards you. And, and it used to just move and then recede, but now the water just keeps coming closer and closer. And it reminds you of a time when you lived on another island, and this started to happen. And so you built a boat, and you made it, and you put as much stuff as you could in this boat and you sailed off until you found another island to start over. And you've done that over and over. But this time, this time you say, this just keeps happening. And I'm tired. I'm tired of starting over, recreating what belongs and what should be here. And I think I'm just going to let this water keep coming. I'm not going to gather up all my stuff. And the water does come and you get really scared. And the water starts to take over the island. You see other people taking off on all these different types of boats. Some of them slap together. Some are just rafts. But you stay there, and you start to get scared, and you panic, and maybe you made the wrong decision. Maybe you shouldn't have trusted to do something different this time, but you're there nonetheless. It's too late, and the water covers you. And you find yourself floating suspended in the water and you panic and you try to yell for help. And when you do, 
water seeps into your lungs and you go black. And then you wake up, still in the water, but you're breathing. You're breathing under water. You look up, you can see boats passing by. You can't believe it. And you start to think like, why was I so scared? You see a dog swim by, barking underwater. You see all your stuff, it's floating around. Somehow you're not, you don't care about it anymore. And you realize that island you were on was one of many small islands, but anybody could do this. Anybody could breathe underwater. And so you swim around and from time to time you jump out onto another little island and you talk with people and you make friends. And sometimes you even forget, you start going back to your old way of thinking and doing things. But then you remember, oh, I'm not stuck on this island. And you dive back into the water and you swim around again and you see things you never thought you'd see before. And you understand things in a different way. And when you talk to people, you start to feel different to them. Like, why aren't you worried about what's going to happen on this island so much anymore? Why do you laugh so easily? And when somebody seems really interested, you try to explain it to them, but it sounds insane. Like a couple of your faces when I said you breathe underwater and your eyebrow just went up really high. You can open your eyes. I think this is where we're going. I think this is our vision as a church. To be a place where we belong and we know God and we know that those things are not different, but that they do require a deep abiding trust and faith that life can happen and God can teach us a new way to breathe, a new way to live. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I, um, I thank you so much for this passage in Colossians, I thank you for the inspiration that you gave Paul to see the world this way. I pray that as we stumble and trip and, and, and fall towards this understanding of reality that Christ holds all things together and that we're, if we're willing, can swim in an ocean of that and that we can recognize and see God around us, the divine around us, and even in us. I pray you give us encouragement to keep moving towards that reality by surrendering to the small island of reality that we hold oftentimes so scared. Give us faith. Amen.